Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hope you had a good sleep last night. All of the pastors and the deacons had a short sleep last night. We have uh, we have pastors and deacons uh, meeting, um, great meeting as always, but uh, we transition out of that. So we typically say the second uh, is it the second Monday, second Monday of every of every month. Um, uh, is uh, yeah we'll we'll see you we'll see you in a few in a few hours so I know you guys are just as busy uh, as, as we are today we are continuing uh, our discussion about uh, the church uh, if you remember we, we went back over to the foundational lessons um, of Grace and Granite whenever we we kicked off this uh, this semester and. Um, I mean, one of the things that we're we're all about doing is is creating churchmen. Um, the church is uh, God's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through Z. I mean, it's the it's the body of Christ. It's it's how God chooses to sanctify His um, His people. I mean, between the first and second coming of Christ, what 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 is happening is Jesus is gathering His bride. And Jesus is preparing his bride for the, for the wedding supper, um, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which, which is coming. And so, you know, in John 14, the passage that, uh, you know, that, that a lot of people know, I think Sean Hannity used to quote it all the time, whether he knew what it meant or not, I don't know. But, um, you know, where Jesus says, I, I go away to prepare a, place, prepare a place for you. I go away, I'm coming again. Let not your heart be troubled, John 14. Um, he says he's going away, uh, and and then he, we know he's coming back. In between his first and second coming, um, people are being saved and people are being sanctified, and he's set apart, uh, given gifts to to all of of those who are part of his church body in order to to do that preparation um, to to prepare the church for for his return. So we're talking about the gifts that you have and using them and serving them in the church and. And so our aim, uh, our goal with Grace and Granite is really you're the tip of the spear. You're, you're men of God. You're, you're men in your homes. You're men you know, in your workplace, men in the community, men in, in your families, men in the church. And so uh, we want to do that with, uh, with, with all of our hearts. So we've got a little video like we normally do. If you're uh, new um, this morning, there's a Grace and Granite book uh, that if you want to get one of those, uh, you can see Clay or Michael uh, right over there. Um, I don't know how many we have left. We we started with a hundred. Uh, I'm not sure what the running uh, you know ticker is. Uh, ah, okay. So um, we've uh, we've got one. We've got one for you. So um, I'm gonna open in prayer. Then we normally read uh, this, the Psalm on the day. So today is October 13th. And so we're going to go there, then we'll see the video, and then we're going to dive back in our lesson. We're going to be on page 133 uh, of our book whenever we get there. So today, Psalm 13. There's some desperation in this psalm. Do you pray with desperation? Here is a, here's a psalm with, which is a prayer of a desperate Prayer. What do I mean by praying with, with desperation? 
I mean, you, you pray in such a way where you, you really need God to answer. Um, you know that unless He answers, something's not going to happen that must happen. Uh, something that you need um, in your life. And here, David is feeling, uh, feeling the pangs of being separated from the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You ever felt that? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? And he's, he's living in his head. He's talking to himself. He's speaking to himself. He wants to hear the voice of the Lord. Having sorrow in my heart all day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? And you get an idea of, of what's going on that's causing David to... Uh, to say this, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, that's a short psalm, but one of the reasons I love the psalms is it, it, it's real, right? I mean, it's where we live. You feel this, you cry out to the Lord. The other reason I like the psalm is watch just the flow. I mean, David is, David is down. He's considering his circumstances. He's, he's been pleading with God to answer. God still hasn't answered something, and so he's still going to the Lord. But in the end, um, he, he drives the, uh, you know, strikes a hammer on, uh, on the spike of faith that's, that's there. But, in verse 5 there, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. That's your covenant love, your commitment. Um, your, uh, your salvation is based on the continuance of your salvation. The perseverance uh, is based on God's commitment to you. Uh, first and foremost, and because of that, then you know, your commitment to Him. Um, but you're in His hand, and He has His firm grip. That's what David is saying. And he says, my heart shall rejoice. He's has sorrow in his heart all day long, and now he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. God may not be answering his prayers or his circumstances, but but he says, I can rejoice in God's salvation. When you hit rock bottom, if everything falls apart, when you hit rock bottom, you're still on the rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. You can't fall any lower than Christ. Um, that's the security. I was listening to the Q&A of uh, MacArthur uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, he was up on the stage on Sunday night, and they were really talking about uh, you know, the church being essential and what's going on at Grace Community. And, and he said, what's the worst thing? The moderator, uh, which was Austin Duncan, Austin said, MacArthur, what's the worst thing that could happen with all these things going on? You know, with the California, they're going to sue them and this and that and the other, and threatening going to jail. And he said, the worst thing that could happen is the church ceases to be, you know, the church. And he's talking about the, the church being, you know, essential. So, I mean, the, what's the worst thing that could happen with, you know, with COVID? We could die and go to heaven, right? I mean, which is the best thing that, you know, that could happen. So, we're, we're winners either way. So here David says, 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. No matter what's going on in your life, you can rejoice in God's salvation. Because that's where we're headed. It's what we're going to talk about in 1 Peter 4 when we get there. I will sing to the Lord. Watch this. Trust, rejoice, sing. You see that? I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart, so that faith then bubbles up in the heart in rejoicing in God's salvation. It's an act of choice. And then the next thing you know is a song on his, on his lips. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. How can David say, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? My enemy is triumphing over me. And, and then, he, then he says, in the, just a few verses later, you've dealt bountifully with me. Because no matter what goes on in your temporal life, God has dealt bountifully with you. How can you say that? Because everyone in here deserves hell. <laughs> and you've received grace, mercy from the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, how clear, piercing, meets us exactly where we're at, how, how we're living, and yet we, we cry like David, we are so frail. Um, and in that frailty, you, you humble us, you remind us that we are, we are not as strong or as great or as mighty as we think we are. Um, even our own thoughts can triumph over us. And so, Father, when that happens, we go to battle, and we go to battle with what we know, what we know about you, um, not, what we, not what we think or what our emotions say, but, um, but we pick up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we see what it says. And when we do, we, we find that you have set your love on us. What, what great security there is in that. Nothing can shake your covenant commitment to us, and um, uh, Lord, that ends up putting a smile on our hearts and a song on our lips, so we pray that you would help us even today to learn about your church and to love your church and be thankful for it, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a video. Uh, This one I think is about four and a half minutes long or so um, by John Piper, excellent on the church. Church member. Why not just be able to go and participate? Um, By member, I think the answer is you should be a church member, but uh, that's not even a clear word. What does member mean? Um, What I mean by member is somebody who, whether by a signature or a word of commitment or promise, says, I'm committed to a people, a people who hear the Word of God preached, a people who uh, perform the uh, ordinances that Jesus gave to his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, a people who commit to the one another commandments, love each other, exhort each other, admonish each other, uh, hold each other accountable. Um, and those, those commitments uh, are what membership is. And uh, I think to resist putting your name on the line for that is something's wrong. If you want to say, okay, I believe the New Testament says be a part of a community, give yourself to ministering there and receiving ministry there 
and advancing the cause of the gospel there and upholding the name of Jesus there and doing mission there. I'm a part of that. Uh, to resist putting your name on the line for that is probably not a biblical conviction, but an American independent, give me elbow room, don't get in my face too often conviction, which I don't think is, is biblical. The, the, the reason for even using the word member is because of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, where Paul uses the word member in a body analogy, right? The, the local church, not just the global church, but the local church is uh, a body. The reason we know it's local and not just global is because while in Ephesians 1 and Colossians he talks about Christ as the head of the body, in 1 Corinthians 12 he's talking about head with eyes and ears that are members of the body. And so the body analogy has one global meaning and it has one local meaning. And so there's global membership in the body universal and there's local membership in the body where I'm a finger or I'm an eye or I'm an ear or I'm a foot and everybody is a member. And so the word member in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is I'm part of a local organism and the finger belongs. It should care about what happens to the eye, and the eye what happens to the finger, and it should function in a way that has some organic coherence to it. And it's very hard to do what the Bible calls a church to do unless it knows who are the members and who aren't. Who are the people that want to be uh, treated as members here? A very simple example of this is the uh, biblical concept of church discipline. In uh, 1 Corinthians 5, for example, where Paul says that the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law or stepmother uh, should be put out of the church because he's so proud and arrogant about his sin and unrepentant and resistant to any kind of exhortation. So put him out of the church. Well, how can you put him out? He would just say, I'll just go here. <laughs> you can't put me out of anything. I'm not in anything. And I think a lot of people don't want to be in anything because they don't even like the idea of being able to be put out of something. So for all those reasons, I think uh, even though there's no sentence in the Bible that says there is such a thing as church membership and thou shalt be a church member, I think it's implied in the nature of the church and the nature of Christian discipleship that everybody should, by a covenant commitment of some kind, name on the line, I'm, I'm here. While I'm in this place, until God leaves me otherwise, these are my people. I'm committed here. That's good stuff, isn't it? So there is a natural inclination of our hearts to be individual. We talked about this before. I, I usually mention this in church history. Because we have a, such a, a rightful disdain for the errors of Catholicism that, that, that basically communicates the grace of God is only available to you through the church. So... There's this, the whole community aspect, you know, grace only comes through, through the church. We have, we've individualized uh, church too much. We've overemphasized, you know, it's my personal walk with God. There is a personal walk, you understand that. You know that you can't be saved through the church and, and that you need, you know, to, to choose whether you're going to follow Christ or, or whether you're, you're not. 
but part of that following Christ happens in the church, and the church is, is necessary. And so even whenever we bring in you know, new members, I'm reminding us as a church family and the folks that are coming in that, that you, know, you can't even obey the New Testament and not be part of a local assembly. Because your spiritual gifts were given, not for you, but for, but for the body. You can't love one another and forgive one another. And, and then your, your, your soul is also in danger because the whole idea of church discipline is, is for you as much as it is for, for the body of Christ. Because you know, discipline, anytime you hear that word, you think you know, getting a spanking whenever you're, you're a child. And sometimes, you know... God does take us to the woodshed and he uses others to do that, and that is a, a good thing. But, but discipline is positive as well as, as negative. I mean, think of the word, discipline. You know, it's, it has the idea of keeping us moving in the right direction and then rescuing us whenever we, we hit the guardrail or, or go, in the, go in the ditch. The only time it becomes, in the sense, you know, protective is when someone is is in unrepentant sin, refuses to, to get out of the ditch when, when they're trying to be restored, according to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Um, you know, you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you know, show them and restore them in the spirit of meekness. So when a person refuses to do that and they're more committed to their sin than they are Christ and His Word and, and the church, then, then now it becomes protective for the rest of the sheep. So now they're taken off the, you know, the road, if you will, in order to, to protect the others that are they're going in the, in, the, in the right direction. And, and that's for you. I mean, you're here this morning, and, and you would say, as a genuine believer, if I fall into sin, I, I hope to God that you would come after me and that you would rebuke me and that you would bring the Word of God to bear on, you know, on, on my life. But there is something about us that, that, that kind of wants to you know, kind of wants to keep everything, you know, out here. I don't, I don't want to press into those kinds of relationships and, and, and be intentional. So we're talking all about the church and, and the passage that we're really walking through, not only in this lesson but the next one, is First Peter 4, uh, 7 through, through 9. And we're looking at the fundamental motives for serving in the church. What should motivate you? Well, there's all kinds of things that should motivate you to serve in the church. Uh, fellowship, uh, in order to uh, have a strong gospel witness, a strong church, what you gain from it, your sanctification. But Peter actually gives us a f- two fundamental motives for serving in the, in the church, and that's what we're looking at. And we looked at the first fundamental motive last time, page 133 in our Grace and Granite books, Verse 7 of 1 Peter 4. Um, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit and for the purpose of, of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. How many times have you heard that word? I'm emphasizing it. One another, one another. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
and he moves on. Now, we talked about this even on Sunday. Here is one of those disciples, apostles, Peter, preached at Pentecost, and he observed Jesus Christ ascend into the heavens. Can you imagine that? I mean, you've been with him. You go back fishing because you think the whole deal that you've been following the last three years is over. The resurrected Christ appears you know, to uh, one of the women first. She comes back and tells you, the tomb's empty. I saw the Lord. Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter runs into the tomb. John hangs back. I mean, Peter is pressing in. This is possible. You know, and so then after that, the Lord himself appears you know, to Peter, teaches them for many days, Pentecost, 50 days after um, the uh, you know, Passover, so 40-some days. And, and, uh, and then they're saying, you know, dashed hopes, renewed hopes. Is now the kingdom? Kingdom's coming, kingdom's coming. They're all about the kingdom. Can I sit on the right hand or on the left? And they're still thinking about the kingdom, and Jesus ascends into heaven. It's not time for the kingdom. It's time to be witnesses, because I'm going to build my church through your witness. And they watch him ascend into heaven. And, I mean, in one sense, I think you'd be thinking, uh, don't go. <laughs> in another sense, you're motivated, right? I mean, you, you know this is absolutely true. And you've watched the Lord go away, and he's given you a commission. But in that commission, the commission is to go witness to the world, be my witnesses, make disciples, bring those disciples into the church, confirm that through their baptism, and then the process of teaching them all things, whatsoever I've commanded you. So he's given you the, the command, you know, the mandate to, to, you know, to, to, go, to go witness. But also in that ascension, what do the angels say? You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing? This same Jesus is coming again. So the two things that you see the apostles all about, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's what you hear. He's both Lord and Christ. They're proclaiming it. They're witnessing. And they're looking for his soon return, the blessed hope. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The hope of the return. The promise of the gospel and the hope of the return of Christ. And those are two things that ought to be motivating and resonating in your heart every morning. You know? the, the, the hope of the gospel and the promise of his, of his return. And here Peter is. The end of all things is near. He's writing. He's writing to believers. The end of all things is, is near. And so the first fundamental motive for serving the church, for giving your life to the church, Peter's writing to the church, is... The end of all things is, you know, is near. And that's what we, we covered last time. Jesus is returning quickly, and at the end he's going to establish his, his kingdom. And as I said even in the intro, what's happening between the first and second coming is the bride is being gathered through your witness, and then the bride is being prepared through the use of your spiritual gifts and the proclamation of the word and, and, and all of that, bringing people in, and then once people are in, sanctifying them, and it's all, it's all happening. And so the motive is the time short, and Jesus is, Jesus is coming. Um, so where we left off on that last time on page 135 is how Peter tightens this up. The end of all things is near, okay? So what, Peter? 
Look at what he says at, as he goes on to verse 7. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This is the very bottom of page 35. In the very next breath, Peter tightens up the way we think about, therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit and the purpose of prayer. You could put this in three categories. What does it mean? How do you live in light of what is a life motivated by the soon return of Christ look like? Well, three things, clarity, discipline, and humility or, or dependence. Um, you live with clarity, with, with sound judgment. You should be clear-headed about the right things. Um, people don't know how to think today, you know that. Um, there is a book that I recommend in homiletics class to, you know, to preachers. It's really small. And the title of the book is kind of catchy. Uh, and you might even want to get it yourself because it's, it's very helpful. It's Why Johnny Can't Preach. It's the title of the, of the book. And the whole argument behind it is one of the reasons that preachers, young guys today, can't preach is because they can't think clearly. Because preaching requires you take a thought and then you develop that. You think logically, and then you're able to think logically and communicate it. And the reason that they can't think critically and clearly is because they don't read, uh, and it, you know it's it's part of their you know their their education and, and upbringing and, and otherwise. Thinking clearly, gentlemen, being able to to think critically and clearly about life and about truth is necessary especially in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back, and He's coming back soon, right? I mean, think of the, the, the malaise of the culture. Why do you have, uh, you know, 20-something and 30-something uh, affluent, rich, white yuppies that are, are burning cities? Because they bought into the nihilistic idea of the, uh, of the culture, I mean, racism is horrible, it's bad, it, it's something that you ought to stand against, and, and yet, the, 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 um, not a proponent of Black Lives Matter, but the whole the concept of racism behind, racism behind it is, is evil and it's an issue, but, but who's hijacking all of that? I mean, the, nobody's even talking about any of that. And the people that are out doing it, Antifa and all, where does all that come from? Well, the idea that... that that, that there's, there's nothing here and postmodern thinking and there's no such thing as truth and, and there's just a malaise of, of, of thinking, critical thinking in the, in the culture. Um, and that produces fools for, for leaders and that produces fools in, in, the, in the country. You have to be able to think critically. Um, you'll be able to think critically according to uh, the scriptures. You have to be able to be clear-headed about the right things. This means thinking critically about spiritual realities and pass this wisdom on to, to younger generations. I, mean, I think one of uh, the most edifying things that you can do is to find somebody that's 20 years or 30 years or 40 years older than you, maybe 50 years older than you, and go spend some time with them um, and talk to them. Ask them, a believer now, ask them about their, their walk with, uh, with, with Christ. Um, glean from the clarity 
of thinking. Because one of the things that time does, I mean, you get weary and you get older and you can't do what you used to do, but one of the things that, that life does is, is it, it, it helps you make sense out of things. Um, and so you want somebody that's already walked a path to pour into to your life. That's one of the ways that will help you to think, to think critically. And they're happy to do that, pass on some of that, of that wisdom. You know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is, is information. Wisdom is, is knowing how to biblically apply it you know, in, in, in your life. Um, we talked about that on Sunday. There's a lot of people that are f- full of information. Um, but what do you do with it? How do you put it in, into practice? Now, it also means that you're clear in your articulation of the truth. And don't let error slip by. You don't let error slip by, by un, uh, unexamined, clear in the articulation of truth. You can't articulate something clearly if you don't understand it, if you don't think critically about it. Um, which is harder? Now, let me say it this way. It's more difficult to do what Matt St. Clair does a lot of times than what I do on Sunday morning. I have 50 minutes to communicate to a room full of adults. Um, that is hard. It's labor. But taking biblical truths and communicating those biblical truths in an understandable way to a three-year-old um, that doesn't have abstract thought and those kind of things, sometimes that's even more difficult. Why? Because you have to understand the truth to the point that you're able to crystallize it and communicate it with, you know, without, without error. I don't mean simple, you know, being simple about it, you know, like the Trinity is an egg or you know, things like that. You, they're, they're, you're not talking about illustrations. You have to be able to, in order to communicate something cr- clearly, you have to be able to think critically. You have to be able to think hard uh, about things. And so sound judgment is necessary, especially in light of, uh, of the Lord's uh, return. Not only that, you have to be sound in judgment. You have to be you have to so, a sober spirit. He, he goes on. Um, so that requires discipline. You should be self-controlled and watchful and alert and ready for... You know, in light of the fact that the, the Lord's return. Um, MacArthur said uh, primarily what's happening in the, cho- the church culture today is you know, junior church went to the main sanctuary. Um, you took a, a number of, of kids, um, you entertained them, you put them, uh, took them out of, out of church, put them you know, in, in a room, uh, dumbed down everything that that was going on. There's no catechisms. There's no critical thinking. There's nothing like that. And then you do the same thing in the youth group. And then whenever they get uh, adults, you know, you do the same thing in college. They're dumb. I mean, they're they're young. They can't understand. They can't do this. And then you just perpetuate that. And the next thing you know, you've got junior church in the main sanctuary. So you want 20 minute sermonettes, and you don't want to talk about anything hard, and you don't want to think critically. You don't want to, you don't want to do anything else. Why do people? Enjoy that. Why do you want 15-minute spurts? Why is it easier to get somebody to watch that five-minute Piper video than to listen a 50, than a 50-minute exposition? You know, because 
we're, we're, we're lazy. We like it's geared toward easiness. We want quick bites. We, we, we don't want to practice discipline, which is what you have to have here. Term for sober spirit. Requires self-control and watchful and, and alert and, and ready. I remember MacArthur saying to me and a number of, of other guys, um, I think I've quoted it to you before, he said, gentlemen, success in ministry is directly related to the length of time that the seat of your trousers stays affixed to the top of your chair, the top of your seat in your study. Um, it takes hard work to exposit the scriptures and to do it clearly. It takes discipline. It takes hard work to fight sin, doesn't it? takes hard work to go through the process of sanctification but it's worth it because Jesus is worthy and he's coming he's coming soon so clarity, sound judgment sober thinking you can't live for eternity with an undisciplined life um, late Adrian Rogers said uh, some men will spend more time uh, as a child, uh, more time uh, learning how to whistle than they will study their Bibles. I mean, think about whenever you were a kid trying to learn how to whistle. How much time did you spend? You know, I still can't whistle really good. Some of you can, you know, do the really loud. I can make a noise, and that that's it. You know, think of the amount of time that you put into learning trivial things, things that are going to perish. Um, they're, some of them aren't wrong. I love to hunt. I love to bow hunt. Bow season's in. I'm looking for windows of opportunity to go do that. And in order to do that, you have to practice. You know, you have to shoot. You don't want to wound the animal. You've got to pack your gear. You got, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of things that you do that you put forth effort, but then say, wow, I'm, really, I'm just too tired to read my Bible. I'm just too tired to go to church. I'm just too tired. I mean, think about that in light of the Lord's return. And he's going to say, Brian, you were able to set aside 30 minutes three times a week in order to shoot your bow. And you couldn't set aside 30 minutes three times a week to study my word. So in light of the Lord's return, it motivates us in that way. Set goals. It will require that you deny yourself require that you'll stretch yourself. And, and brothers, I'm preaching to the choir. I really mean this. I mean, you're here, right? 6 a.m. I got up at 3.45 this morning. You got up somewhere around there, and you're here. So you're doing exactly what Peter is saying here. So praise God. Um, good for you. And the Lord will bear fruit in your life because of that. Uh, the, the third one, though, it, when, when, when you think clearly, you know, you're a critical thinker, in your self-controlled and, and watchful, your discipline, you, a sound judgment and sober spirit, notice this. What naturally does that, does that produce in our flesh? The very opposite of what Peter says it should produce. You know, being able to think really clearly and being disciplined typically produces pride. Have you seen guys like that? They're really gifted in, in the clarity of thought, and they're really disciplined. I mean, some people just naturally you know, are regimented and disciplined, and they go, I mean, 
they're genetically, uh, you know, don't have an ounce of fat on them. You know, they're born with, a, with, a, with an eight-pack, not a six-pack. And they're going, I don't understand why you can't just look like me and do what I, you know, eat whatever I want. I mean, exercise is great, no problem. They, you can do that in spiritual things. It's a natural thing. It's not to produce pride in our lives. So, again, in light of the Lord's return, the motive is to give yourself to the church. How do you give yourself to the church? He's tightening that up. In light of the Lord's return, think critically, be self-disciplined, and that should produce humility and dependence, not pride and individualism. So notice what he says here, for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near, therefore be of a sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, why do we say humility and dependence? Because I said on Sunday, the most humble, dependent thing you can do is, is pray. I mean, pray, not mouth words. Genuine dependence, you know, on God. Genuine humility. Only the Lord can answer this situation. Sounds a lot like what David did this morning um, in Psalm 13. We pray more effectively and more appropriately when we are alert and you'll be much more dependent if you're thinking about spiritual matters rightly. I mean, even the fact that we're talking this morning about the Lord's return and the Lord really is coming, it'll change the way you pray, change the way you think, change the way you live, but it'll also change the way that you, you, know, that, that you pray. Um, the devil wants us to always put off everything until tomorrow. So that's the first fundamental motive for serving in the church. The Lord's coming. Look at the second one. Fervent love for one another. Here is the second fundamental motive. Watch what he does here in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Again, this is all about the church. Now think about this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, make sure you share the gospel with unbelievers. Isn't that what you would naturally think Peter to say? I mean, hell is real, and it is. People are dying, and they're going there, and they are. And you should share the gospel. But look at the priority given here to the people of God. The end of all things is near. Above all... Keep fervent in your love, not for unbelievers, but for one another. You should love unbelievers, but love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there is a gospel witness in there. Because the church collectively that lives out the gospel is a witness to the unbelieving world. You're no less sinful. Well, I shouldn't say that. You... You, you are a sinner just like the unbelieving world. But you'll treat that sin completely differently than the unbelieving world, and that's a witness to the unbelieving world. You'll confess it, you'll forgive one another, and you put the gospel on display whenever you do that. The, the, you want to change the culture? You want to fix racism? You want to do that? Be a biblical church and operate in a biblical way. That's how you fix all of those cultural things. The transforming effect of the church is to be the church and be a biblical church, not try to change social matters. It's a, it's a byproduct of a biblical church living out the, the gospel. 
So how do they do that? What does that look like? Above all, be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So fervent love for one another. That's the second motive. Um, fervent in your love. Uh, the word fervent means to be, to be stretched beyond where you are. It was used in, in the games when somebody was running. It's to stretch your muscles uh, even beyond. So, 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 so you're lifting weights, you're running, you're doing something, you get to the plateau and you stretch beyond that. You figure out ways to, 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 to take the next step. That's the idea here. Um, it is a quote from Proverbs 10, 10, 12. Um, somebody look up Proverbs 10, 12 for me. And... Uh, read that? Who would be willing to do that? When you get somebody gets there, raise their hand. All right, David? Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Peter is quoting the Old Testament here, and he says, have fervent love for one another you know, stimulate, stretch even beyond the love that you already have, the natural love that you have for other believers. Stretch even beyond that because love covers offenses. You know, what does he mean there? Well, look at number one. The most important outworking, outworking of love, love is in your heart through the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5, bubbling up in your heart. Love for God, love for others. But the most important outworking of that love that's in your heart is to reduce the ripple effect of of sin. Reduce the ripple effect of sin. Sin happens. Sin happens in the church. Sin happens in your life. And love is the tool that the motive that God gives us in order to to deal with it. Um, Mark Hager I have I have two hands right here, and I'm to walk around. What am I having? To, what am I supposed to have in one hand, and what am I supposed to have in the other hand? Yep, I'm to live my life every day with this attitude. I'm ready to repent, and I'm willing to forgive. Ready to repent, I'm willing to forgive. That's covering sin with with love. I'm willing to to cover my own sin with repentance. And I'm willing to cover somebody else's sin with, with forgiveness. And that happens and is supposed to operate in the, in the church. And so that reduces the ripple effects of, of sin. Love covers all kinds of messiness. Fervent love puts a cloak over sin. So the idea here is a smoldering fire, and, and the idea is to throw a wet blanket you know, over that. It, it smothers it out. That's what love is supposed to do. When someone sins against you or there's sin in their own life, you're, that love, the outworking of that is, is you're willing to forgive, you're granting forgiveness, or you're leading them to repent. And that reduces the, the, out, uh, the ripple effects of, of sin. Um, it confronts this love confronts love covering a multitude what is love covering it doesn't mean well what will be will be and you know i'm a sinner and they're a sinner and so we'll just kind of you know overlook it 
I'm not going to be offended by that because I'm a sinner just like they're a sinner. Um, love confronts. I mean, Matthew 18 clearly says that. Um, if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother and you show them their fault. You know the word there for show them their fault? is the word that was used for laying out a legal case. You lay out a biblical case. You show them how they violated the, the, the scriptures. So the, I'm a believer. And as a believer, I read this word and it reveals to me, or I, somebody preaches it to me, the word, I come in contact with the word, and it reveals to me that Jesus is the Christ. And through that process of my eyes being opened, I repent, I believe, I exercise faith, I, I call on the, the name of God, I'm regenerated and changed and you know, all, of, all of those kinds of things. It doesn't end there, right? So this word, I'm begotten by the word. The word makes me a, a believer. And then I arrange myself under the word. Now I'm living under the word of Christ. This, how, what does the lordship of Christ mean? It means that I'm operating my life under whatever the Bible says. I'm placing myself under the lordship of Christ, under his voice. I'm hearing his words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. It doesn't just mean let those words fall in your ear. It, it means hear what God says, do what God says, because he's the one true and living God. He's your God. So the word reveals to me who God is, it convicts me, the Holy Spirit convicts me, convicts me of my sin, the Holy Spirit regenerates me, then I exercise faith and repentance, and then I arrange my life under, under the Word. But I'm still a sinner. I still have flesh. I still live in a fallen world. And so guess what happens? Sometimes I get out from under the Word. And in the church, what other people do is they find that person they're in such close relationship with other people in the body. They have a covenant commitment with them that they see that person out from under the word and then they go to them and they show them their fault. They try to bring them back under the word. And if they hear you, then you've gained a brother. If they won't hear you, then guess what? You go get a couple more people from the church to show them their fault. There's no list of sins there. You only... It's not do this for the adulterers and the drunkards and, you know, and the liars. It's, it's anyone who's out of line with, with the Scriptures. And Galatians 6 one says you do that with a spirit of meekness considering yourself because you could also be this one. It's part of the commitment that's there. So love confronts. This loving cover, love covering a multitude of sins doesn't just mean that, that you, you, go, you go along. It also forgives. It doesn't hold a grudge. What does love look like? Well, you know the passage in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, it keeps no record of wrongs. Has your wife offended you lately? Don't answer that out loud. She's not here anyway. She might listen to this, though. Do you remember what that offense was? Well, I mean, in one sense, when the Bible talks about when, when God says that he cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, or, you know, that he doesn't remember them anymore, that doesn't mean that, that God, you know, 
the information's not there, it means he chooses never to bring it up again. He doesn't dwell on it. Um, so I'm not saying that when your wife sinned against you or more probably more applicable to you when you sin against your wife and she gets historical, right? Uh, hysterical, historical. Um, she remembers everything that you did. That's not love. Love knows that information but chooses not to dwell on it. That's part of love covering a multitude of sins. People are going to sin against you in the church and they're going to do it over and over and over. And guess what? You'll do the same thing. So confrontation is part of love. Forgiving is part of love. And then keeping no record of that. Wasn't Peter, the same one writing here, shocked whenever he asked Jesus the question, how many times shall I forgive? Um, Seven times 70, 490 times. That's mind-blowing. And you read that and you go, help me, Lord. I need the Spirit of God. Well, one of the things that will help you is to remember the Lord's return is, is drawing near. Um, and the other thing that will help you is to stretch your love beyond what it is. You know, the Lord may be teaching you a lesson in the midst of that habitual sin of somebody else, somebody habitually sinning against you. The Lord may be doing that, allowing that, is a better word, to stretch your love. Um, or the good thing, say it this way, the good thing that God can bring out of someone's habitual sin is it stretches your love um, to throw a blanket over it. My blanket's like this big, and my blanket really needs to be like this big. How does it get from here to here through that process? Uh, um, it, it doesn't gossip. It, it, it protects. It doesn't ignore um, it doesn't cover unrepentance. You say, well, what about the people that refuse to repent? Well, that's, that's a whole other animal. Um, once you love them, you try to cover their sin with, with love, you can get to the point where they refuse from one to two to tell it to the church. Now the whole body's involved, and then they're functionally declared as acting like an unbeliever. Um, so final judgment's up to God. They'll tell you, you can't see my heart, you don't know, I prayed, I, you know. You know don't, even, don't even fight that battle. It's, don't even play ball on that field. It's irrelevant. I can't see your heart. But Matthew 18 says, functionally, the church is to call a judgment. I am to discern the fruit of your life, and you're to discern the fruit of my life. It's, it's an imperfect discernment, which is why we're going to the Bible and we're doing that humbly, and why sometimes we take more than just me, and why... It ultimately comes to the church, and then functionally let them be unto thee as a heathen and a publican, as the King James says, I memorized it. Um, What does that mean? Functionally, you declare them as somebody who's acting like an unbeliever because their life doesn't match their their profession. Notice, though, the kind of love is without hypocrisy, meaning it's genuine. I mean, people can tell when you come to them in love to throw a blanket over and whenever you're just being a sin sniffer, right? Uh, I can't remember who it was. Someone says, be a grace hunter in people's lives, not a sin sniffer. People in the church are sin sniffers, right? Very easy. 
for me to see the sin in your life. Very difficult for me to see the sin in my own life. We can see the sin in others. The Bible says, look for the evidences of God's grace in somebody's life. But deal with the sin if you, if you see it. Love without hypocrisy, it's genuine. It's not duplicitous. There's a genuine motive behind it. It's rooted in truth. It, it confronts. It, it speaks. It makes you useful in the church. Um, restoring someone, restoring that brother in Galatians 6.1 is restoring them to usefulness. And it also benefits you because you're considering your, yourself. But look at four here. This kind of love may not be reciprocated. I think this is probably one of the hardest things. Not the hardest. One of the hardest things about showing genuine biblical love. Because you you may pursue God in that and you begin to show biblical love and then you're going to get stiff-armed person's not going to respond. They're not going to respond at all, or they're not going to respond well. And the immediate thing that's going to well up in your heart is, what's the deal? I forgave them. I did what I'm supposed to do. And this is what I get? And that's what your flesh is going to say. And the minute that that happens in your heart, you're outside of the bounds of biblical love. Um, For God so loved the world. Does the whole world love God? No. There is a general love that God has even for unbelievers. There's a special, specific love that God has for the people of God, for the church. It may not be reciprocated. You may love people in the church, and they may not return it to you. But we're not driven by receiving love, only giving it. Love at its zenith happens when you do not get a reciprocal response because you're never more like the Lord whenever you forgive and whenever you express this kind of love and you receive nothing in return. Love people without any expectation of what they'll give you Um, and you'll be like, you'll be like Christ. The most, out, uh, the most important outworking of love is to reduce the ripple effect of sin. And love for one another is sacrificial, even extending uh, to brethren we don't know. Look at how Peter goes on. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. We're still talking about the church. Without complaint. Be hospitable to one another. And you're sitting there going, okay, there's love. All right. I, I normally don't think love. I, I, I think emotion. Um, you're saying to think uh, about the relationships in the church and dealing with sin and doing it rightly. Um, second thing Peter's going to go through is something really practical. Love for one another is sacrificial. And he uses the word hospitable. I guess what I'd want to say to you here is it will cost you, uh, but love is practical. It's not just emotional. It's not just confronting. It's actually meeting needs. 
It's what you do in the church. Um, open your home. Sit with somebody. Listen to them. That's how you love. It's an affectionate concern for people, here especially strangers. This past Sunday, um, there was, you. I mentioned this to the guys last night, here's a perfect example of this. I mentioned in the prayer time about Tim and Emily Mosher going back to Malawi, right? And I asked to pray specifically about the passport. You know, they flew back from Malawi on a on a, a an embassy flight with a bunch of other people there in Malawi. You know, they, they, any American citizens that were you know that were there when the whole COVID thing started, we're going to get you out. You know, um, you you have the option. You don't have to leave, but you have the option if you want a flight. The government is chartering a flight, and you have to pay for the tickets to get back, but you'll get back, you know, for sure. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether the outbreak's going to happen in Africa, yada, yada. So they, they returned on, uh, that, on that flight. Because of that, they, 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 they have to be able to, to get back in. Um, and they had to show proof of the reason that they left, and, and that involved their passport, and that involved their visa. There was a lady connected, maybe to one of you all that's even sitting here, that was visiting from Florida that was part of a congressman's office, who came up to me afterwards and said, you mentioned that, um, I, I'll be happy to help. You know, who is this, who's this missionary? I, I'm leaving a lot of parts out. But I connected her with, with Tim, and he says, well... I'm, you're in Florida. She's part of Congressman's office in Florida, and you're in, she said it doesn't matter. Be happy to help. There's a practical expression of love, um, an outpouring of that. That is showing hospitality. Not even somebody that's part of her own church, not even somebody in the same congressional district, but a believer helping another believer, showing hospitality, and you have no idea how the Lord will work. That's the attitude with which you you live, not only toward people in your church, but people in the church in general. Piper talked about the local church. He also talked about the, the church as a, as a whole. The hospitality word group is directed at brethren primarily. It's an affectionate concern for people, especially tra- uh, strangers. And the hospitality commands are directed at the body. You should love your neighbors, even your unbelieving neighbors. Um, but your service primarily is directed at the, the body of Christ. Uh, do good to all men, especially the brethren, uh, Paul says. And then he rounds this whole study up with and the depth of your love accelerates without any complaint. Be hospitable toward one another without complaint. And what does that mean? Well, it, it's kind of uh, oil or grease that uh, you know, Peter puts in here. Because we're to be hospitable, that's practical. You're Open your life, open your home, do good 
to you know to others that's an aspect of so showing love you to do you're to do that within the church toward their sin and then toward their needs be hospitable toward one another without complaint and there's the oil and the grease because whenever believers live in close proximity to one another uh, it's sparks can fly everybody in here is at a different stage of sanctification you come from a different background you believe the same doctrines. You probably have the majority of the same convictions, but you may have very different preferences. Um, preferences from style of music to dress to, you know, do you watch movies at all? Uh, do you watch uh, PG-13? Do you watch, you know, R-rated war movies as long as there's no nudity? I mean, you're working all of these different angles, you know, that, that are there. And so when sparks fly, you show hospitality without complaint. You set aside your preferences, and you set aside your differences. You prefer one another, to use what the Apostle Paul says. You prefer, it may not be the way that you would do it, but love sets aside differences and sets aside preferences you may find yourself in unfamiliar surroundings with believers, but they will be your close comrades because of your common faith. Um, I highly recommend you going on a short-term mission trip, or we would call it a short-term ministry trip, because ministry has to do with service. That's primarily what you'll do if you go on a short-term trip. The word mission is tied to planting local churches, meaning you're preaching the gospel, you're teaching the gospel. So short-term ministry trip. Um, and one of the reasons I recommend that you do that is because it will force you to get outside of your local church, and it'll put you in close proximity to other believers. And, and there's a big difference outside looking in than inside looking out. A lot of people spend the majority of their time uh, looking out from the same pew, and that's a great thing. But when you get outside of that, there's two things that are going to happen. You're going to become very appreciative of your own local church, and then you're also going to be forced to, to deal, okay, what is actual biblical doctrinal things, and what is just my church subculture? Because you're going to go places, and they're going to they're going to do things differently. They're going to have a different structure. I mean, I can remember the first time that I went outside of my church and went overseas, and they're banging on a, you know, a I don't even know what they called it. It looks like a, 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 a djembe comes to my mind. Is that is that is that the long tubular thing? And and it was, and they're praying, and it was. It was very, let me just say, it was very different from what Red House Independent Baptist Church looked like. And I'm very thankful. I came back very thankful for a number of things that we did. But I was challenged in that. I was very uncomfortable up front. But I could not deny that these were believers. I'm praying with them. I'm listening to the gospel being preached. My, my spirit is resonating with their spirit. This is a wonderful thing. Um, and so... That will, that will help you 
Um, it'll force you to go through this process. You're going to go through that process not by going, just going to Nepal or Africa or wherever it is. You'll go through that process sitting in a local church unless the only people that you hang around are your own peer groups, your own age, and your own likes, and your own dislikes. Um, and so then you become a smaller part of a larger body. Don't do that. You may find yourself in unfamiliar surroundings with believers, um, but you can have fellowship with them because of your common faith. And the body then becomes more useful to the Lord who is coming. I mean, the whole purpose is not about you, for you to grow in your understanding. The whole purpose is for the body of Christ to be prepared for His coming and for more unbelievers to be, become part of that body, wanting to be you know, added to it. So fundamental motivations. Next time, we're going to talk about uh, a faithful call to serving, so we're going to keep right on going here in, in Peter. Any thoughts or comments before I turn you loose? We have a few minutes. Thought or comment? A couple minutes? Some of the ways that we do that? Oh, we struggle to do that. Um, Well, I I think I see us forgiving one another and doing a good job at at probably the first part of this. I I don't know of any. I mean, one of the pa- the passages that we've got coming up this Sunday uh, in Philippians is the is the two women that have a disagreement in uh, Philippi, and Paul talks about that. Um, I mean, I know there are interpersonal conflicts in our church, just like there are in any church, but but I don't know of any major disunity going on in our body right now or otherwise. but So I would probably uh, say the area of improvement would be in the second part, the hospitality part, um, because I think it's, it's natural uh, to stay in your own individual bubble and in your own you know, peer group, so, uh, and that stunts your spiritual growth. You, know, you don't have a, a, a Titus II type of, you know, of, of ministry. So I would say be intentional. I mean, the most basic level of service. I mean, what you signed up for is coming to church. I mean, beyond anything else. You don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Not so you can check a box or because that's what Baptists do, but because your very presence provokes one another to love and good work. So you have a corporate gathering where you're provoking each other to be more like Christ. And then... But Paul's saying, I mean, Peter's saying here that it has to go beyond just the corporate. I mean, you can come and sit on the pew and talk to your friends or, you know, go to Pastor Clay's house or mine or wherever afterwards, and, and you need to even go, you know, beyond that. Um, so I would say being intentional um, and, and not thinking that serving is, is a position like I want to sign up for Matt St. Clair's uh, nursery on Sunday. You need me to plug anything else while I'm out here? Yeah. Um, we normally think serving in the church is I have a position. Serving, I mean, serving in the church is, is people work. 
That's talking to somebody after church. I mean, you're going to encourage somebody. You're going to help somebody. You don't have to take them to coffee. Just be interested in people. Ask them questions. How are you doing? What's going on? And the first time you, you ask them, how are you doing? They, you may, they may say, fine, great. You know? How are you doing? Today? Great, good. You, know? you do that enough, and it's love without hypocrisy. They can tell that you genuinely care. At some point, they're going to tell you, yeah, I'm doing okay, but you know, I'm really discouraged because, you know, whatever. Or I've got this. Larry? great. Amen. Being intentional, keeping your eyes open. That's good. Yeah, Mark? Mm-hmm. true. It's good. It's good. Sure. Isn't it interesting that the fountainhead of, of, of that part of the passage is the Lord's return? I mean, the Lord's soon returning. He's coming back. So deal with that complaint because this life's soon going to be over and you're going to be with Christ and the reward that you have is the reward that you have. And it's, it's yeah, it's 
Let me leave you with this thought. We sing songs, uh, Southern Gospel, hymns, otherwise, about heaven. The streets are paved with gold. What that's trying to communicate is the trinkets of this life, what's most valuable in this life is not valuable at all. I mean, it's what you walk on. What will be valuable in heaven? What do you, you know, we strive here, worldlings strive here for things that they value, money, resources. What will be the most valuable thing in heaven? You're going to be in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And whatever you enter heaven with is what you have, as far as what Peter's talking about here. What will be valuable in heaven? Well, the only thing that's going to be valuable in heaven, or the most valuable thing in heaven, is your worship that you can give Jesus Christ, because he is the centerpiece of heaven. And so all of the things that you do now, between the time you're saved until you see him face to face, those good works, that sacrificial living, those crowns, the Bible talks about a number of different ways, is going to be brought before the Lord at the Bema Seat judgment, and He's going to sift it, and you're going to be rewarded for what is true, and then you're going to suffer loss for what's not. He's going to burn away the dross, and you're going to be left with genuine, spirit-driven, love-wrought, Christ-dependent fruit. And then what are you going to do with that? What's the purpose of that? So you can pat yourself on the back in heaven and say, well, man, i got a bigger pile here than, you know, Brother Ed. No, you're going to take those crowns and you're going to cast them at Jesus' feet. What you enter heaven with is what you will have for all eternity to worship the risen Lamb. That's what's valuable in heaven. That's the motive to serve Christ here because that will ripple into eternity. And so serve Him with all your heart. Think clearly. Be disciplined. Because in the end, what He produces in you, as you yield to that and participate in that, will be, not gold, that's worthless, but it will be worship gold that you can cast at His feet. It's good, isn't it? All right, go live for Him. Father, we love You. We thank You for these men and... um, We thank you for our church. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for what they do in my heart uh, to serve you. Thank you for how you encouraged me, even this morning. I love them. I love you. And I thank you that you love us, um, sinful, and and yet we, we, we want to be pleasing to you. So help us to do that. And We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.